build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Okay, I want to start this episode with a question. Imagine you've got a bunch of topo maps spread out in front of you. They depict all the intricacies of a mountain range, the high mountain passes, alpine meadows, hanging valleys, and the deep recesses, the canyons, choked with slide alder and devil's club. So here's the question. Would you rather stick to the wide open places, or would you prefer to spend your day thrashing in the brush? It didn't take you long to answer that question, did it? Now, let's go back to those topo maps. I want you to plan a course across this imaginary mountain range. So looking at these maps, you do your best to avoid those places where you might end up thrashing around. But we all know, if you're going to cross something, if you're going to do something like that, the reality is that you're going to end up swearing, dripping sweat, physically crushed, and scratched to hell. It's the reality of life. The wilderness of emotion runs the same gamut of ecosystems. The ethereal, rumbling joy of mountaintops I can find that in, in music on a sunny summer afternoon. I, I find it when I wake up in Becca's arms. I find it during the process of creating and putting together these stories. And even though I don't enjoy bushwhacking through Devil's Club and Alder, I've come to terms with the fact that it is just part of life. Or at least my life. Bushwhacking is part of my personal terrain. At the core of the diaries, this greater project, it's about joy. It's about high places, the open space, wonderful, oddly fulfilling emptiness of wilderness. But you also know that at times, contributors have stepped forward to talk about loneliness, sorrow, and depression. The diaries contains a mix of dark and light, because for better or for worse, the diaries are a reflection of me. And I contain both. I possess both a, an unbridled joy, an optimism, and... Also an unexplainable, irrational sadness that at times I have to deal with. Today I've got my own story to tell and I admit I'm a little bit nervous. I'm worried that you might take it the wrong way, that you might think I don't realize how lucky I am. I do. And also maybe I'm a little bit worried that you won't even believe me. There are elements of this story that seem like a tall tale, that seem unbelievable. But, like it or not, these are the words that came out of my hands when I sat down to write about our 45-day climbing trip across the Sierra this fall. I'm going to throw caution to the wind because, well, that's kind of how we roll here at the Diaries. I'm Fitzcahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. The trail disappeared beneath snow. Shielding my hood with an arm, 
I strained my eyes to pick a path up through the broad valley walls. The path lay beyond. In the whiteout, vertigo swelled behind my eyes. I looked down at my feet, nestled six inches deep in the previous night's snow. Somewhere beyond his Matterhorn peaks, granite flanks were gathering snow. Beyond that, the nearest exit out of the Sierra. We were nearing the first of two 10,000-foot passes we would need to cross. Behind me, Becca cradled her injured hand close to her heart. In the cold, we'd been forced to remove the splint and sling that we used to protect the healing wound. Five days earlier, while striding across Talus, a rock shifted, sending Becca for a tumble. Her thumb wound up pinched between a flat rock and a sharp stone blade, severing an artery and chipping the bone. The emergency room stitches were still fresh. We'd discussed calling it a trip, but neither of us wanted to leave. We'd keep walking, even if we couldn't climb. solid rain we decided to make a run for it when the downpour turned to snow earlier that morning immediately we walked into a wall of white we could have turned back and hunkered back into the tent that would have been the conservative call but there didn't seem to be anything conservative about this storm we could retreat back to treeline crawl into our soaking tent and damp sleeping bags we could hope for blue skies but that seemed overly optimistic our lightweight gear was meant for summer squalls it seemed more likely that staying put would earn us an embarrassing helicopter ride home. Six years earlier, we'd been just north of here, in the exact same October week, when an unforecasted storm rolled through, leaving three feet of snow, stranding dozens of hikers, killing several climbers on El Cap. It closed the high country for the remainder of the winter. Now, six years later, this storm had that same feeling to it. Both had been preceded by a heat wave, and then a day or two of unsettled weather. Today's forecast called for 60 degrees and sunny. It was 25 degrees and snowing an inch an hour. Becca and I both knew it was time to head for the exit. In the flat light, I stabbed with the ski pole at the snow in front of us to interrupt an otherwise untouched field of white. I needed depth to see. White Why? That was the question I fielded most often before we left. Fair enough. It was an ambitious, stubborn, if not borderline inefficient approach to climbing. We would walk almost the entire length of the High Sierra from southern Sequoia National Park, 300 miles north through Yosemite. We'd carry climbing gear the entire way, climbing as much as our rations, bodies, and weather would permit. It's at a more like the never-ending approach than a climbing trip. Why was a pretty valid inquiry. people who asked that question before Beck and I left in August, I'd given several answers. I've been thinking about this trip for a decade after hearing about it over a campfire. I wasn't getting any younger. Then there was the fact that the men who I admired had done this trip in similar fashion. Of course, John Muir. David Brower did a very similar trip in the 1930s. Over the course of two months, he and his cohorts ticked 55 peaks and concluded their trip with a moonlight climb of Matterhorn Peak. Maybe to some people I'd say that I wanted to prove that you didn't have to travel to Pakistan or Baffin Island to have a truly profound adventure, that it existed in our backyard ranges, that it is possible to take a climbing road trip without the car or even a road, that a modern adventure is more a reflection of creativity and individuality than it is a setting 
or an environment. The people closest to me knew better. I was looking for an escape. I was drinking too much, sleeping not enough. I pushed through writer's block simply because I didn't have time for it. A quiet specter of depression tapped at my shoulder. I relied on the theory that an animal in motion is less likely to be caught. Keep moving. Don't rest. Don't think. Just get to the trip. In the clutter, the noise, the constant motion of my life, I was struggling to hear the quiet. If you never come out of the mountains, you never have to answer the phone, I figured. Secretly, I'd hoped that this trip would provide easy, quick answers. That they would snap from the sky, through my mind, straight down the spine, as quick and complete as a lightning strike. That would write my direction that I'd found myself headed in. I was waiting for someone or something to save me. trail isn't necessary for upward progress. I stepped forward. I began to create my own path towards Burrow Pass. I took another step. Talus shifted. My feet skated on six inches of snow and I fell directly into stranded turtle position. I struggled beneath the weight of the 65 pound pack. The trip whittled 15 pounds off of my six foot two tall 160 pound frame. With the pack on, I felt pretty top heavy. Neither Becca nor I could bring ourselves to say it outright. Our margin for safety was as slim as it had ever been. A mistake, a misstep, a twisted ankle, a blown-out knee would mean leaving the other behind to fetch help. The steep talus slopes offered no flat ground for our floorless tent. The situation was fine, I reminded myself. Our bodies would stay warm as long as we kept moving. We just had to pause long enough to eat and drink. We navigated in whiteouts before. We've done enough ski schwacking in the Cascades that orienting with a compass isn't that hard. We just had to keep heading uphill and hit the ridge and find the pass. Without the trail, travel over the jumble of rocks would be excruciating and slow, but still possible. We just have to be patient. Just beneath those rational thoughts, the other side of reality gnawed. It was October. It was the Sierra. It was snowing so hard it was difficult to open my eyes. Our gear was ridiculously light. We were 17 miles from the nearest road, wet from head to foot. We could retreat back to the woods. We could play it safe. If it snowed us in, our friends, who were set to meet us that evening, would eventually alert the authorities. I wasn't sure if I was making the right decision. Only hindsight would tell. But my instinct was to keep walking. Keep moving. Right about then, the lightning started and the storm swallowed us. Our footprints led back into the swirling light. I reminded myself to appreciate the rawness of the moment. This was obviously a day we would never forget. I knew four 
four days into our trip that epiphanies weren't coming. After two years of pushing my mind to its creative limit, it got down to the business of healing. For the first week, I was haunted by phantom cell phone calls ringing in my pocket. I dreamed about work incessantly. I chased away thoughts that I was shirking responsibility for my business and family. Instead, I fished. I even caught fish. I imagined my mind being like a dry fly, about to be swallowed whole. We put up new routes. We climbed forgotten ones. We followed in the footsteps of Muir into the walls of the celestial city. I read books. Amazing, I know. We remembered that approaches aren't something to be reviled or rushed, but just part of the wonderful process of alpine rock climbing. There were strings of days where we saw no one else. We lounged naked on granite slabs next to deep, crystal-clear pools. Becca and I began to think as one, completing daily tasks in wordless unison, answering questions the other one was about to ask. Eventually, the phantom cell phone stopped ringing. The worries about shirked responsibilities faded. This is the most beautiful place I've ever seen, became the words most commonly heard coming from my mouth. You just said that, Becca would say with an amused but loving smile. When cramps and diarrhea racked Becca's body, I pulled weight from her bag and nursed her the best I could. And when stress-induced shingles would bleed the enthusiasm and strength for me, Becca would quietly take over, fluttering through camp to handle the evening chores and organize gear for the next day's climb. These small acts of caring grew to fill the great empty spaces of the Sierra. The questions remained. Should we leave the city, move back to the Sierra, even if it meant struggling with work again? Would that make my bad days better? Could we afford to start a family one day? Should I let go of my work completely, take a job writing press releases, and leave my job on a desk at 5 p.m. every night? Were my creative passions killing me, or was I plenty capable on my own? After 42 days in the wilderness, there were no answers, and I stopped asking. There were no neat solutions presented by unseen forces that spoke with such clarity, with such obvious marching orders, that I could follow them back into the flatlands. The only obvious thing was that I was happy out here, that my mind and body loved the rhythm of the rising and falling sun, that sleeping 10 hours a day doesn't make you a lazy slob, that humans weren't necessarily designed to know what day of the week it was, that our community's habit of labeling grueling climbs, chattering teeth, lightning storms as suffering was nothing more than a flare for the dramatic. Suffering my ass. Out here, ideas drink from inspiration like tree roots soaking up spring melt. This, goddammit, is thriving. But I couldn't stay out here forever. ridge just above us. I took another tentative step forward, then another. I'd lost the trail completely. At this rate, we would be spending another night out. Even though our camp had flooded the previous night, we managed to keep our down bags dry by putting them in the bear bins. I took another step forward. 
The blanket of snow hid where it was a mess of jagged talus. I slipped again. A few minutes later, Becca ripped the stitches in her hand. Our progress slowed. We needed a path. We needed a trail. I waited for the smallest gap in the clouds, hoping to orient off the Matterhorn, the same mountain that Jack Kerouac had summited with poet Gary Snyder on a cold October day, and then made famous in his novel Dharma Bumps. I'd hoped they'd had better viz. No break came. I moved simply because there was no other clear direction. I stabbed with my ski pole. And then tracks appeared like a gift, right in front of me, the unmistakable hoof prints of a deer. The tracks ended four feet in front of me like the animal had been plucked from the storm. And from their position, it looked like whatever deer had just been there should still be standing right there. I stopped. I muttered to myself, follow the tracks. They will lead you. Took another step forward. Looked right, then left for the shadowy form of a buck. I think I maybe even looked up. Nothing. I motioned Becca forward to investigate. I stepped slightly to the left to make room for her. And right at that second, I realized I'd stepped onto the relatively uniform ground of the trail we'd lost earlier. I've got the trail, I said, surprised. What do you think? Wordlessly, we both answered the question. Each step became more decisive. When the trail became obscure or switched back, the buck's tracks appeared. We were moving quickly again, steady with sure footing beneath us. Forty-five minutes later, we paused briefly atop the pass to appreciate the force of the wind. Squeezed by mountain walls, it accelerated through the pinch and wiped away any sign of the deer's trail. The cloud ceiling lifted to offer a momentary view of the path into and out of the next valley. We were leaving Yosemite. We reminded one another to pause, to take notice of the snowflakes' unique patterns before they melted on jackets. Cold, wet, and physically exhausted, we were speeding to our lives in the flatlands. Even days like this can be gifts. Then the shivering started. So we started walking. It began to rain. The, the day moved forward in the sharp resolution that comes with heightened concentration. I will never forget the booming concussion of the string of lightning strikes as we crossed the second pass or the reluctant bemusement of watching Becca covered in rime and snow and clinging to tree branches and third-class cliff systems we'd accidentally stumbled into. We relied on every tool we gleaned from our decade of adventure, but every time it started to get really bad, when we'd begin to doubt our blindly staked path and pull the compass and topo map to begin whiteout navigation, the buck's tracks would appear, leading us in the right direction, his presence unseen but felt. tempting to imbue this moment with deep meaning. But the more I replay that day, the more I realize that to interpret these details as anything other than facts is to deny the moment's beauty. There was a blizzard. We were dangerously exposed to lightning and cold. We lost the trail and slowed when we desperately needed to move quickly. Deer tracks appeared. We followed them because 
that seemed like the best option. Eventually, through the gloom, the flawless granite turret of the Incredible Hulk emerged through the snow and cloud. Beyond that little slide canyon, snow line, and the flat valley below, we lurched downward through 3,000 feet of talus. Knees wavered with exhaustion. Blood trickled from scraped ankle bones. We fell repeatedly. In the gathering dusk, we waded thigh-deep through flooded, stinking beaver ponds and collapsed onto a rain-soaked trail lined with sage and hugged each other. Three miles of flat, wide trail remained. Becca took the lead, and for the final time of the trip, tapped into the unseen, shared reservoir of energy we'd been drinking liberally from on this trip. Wrecked and too tired to ask questions, provide answers, or even formulate a sentence I followed, pulled by her slipstream. An hour later, we staggered into a massive campground and wandered, lost amongst the darkened forms of hundreds of slumbering RVs, back into a life, a day-to-day -day wilderness that no map and no compass can lead me through. Today by Gold Panda, Frederick, Home Video, Zoologias, and Firehorse. You can find all the links to the cuts on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. And you can find the links to the Dirtbag Diary t-shirts and decals. The sales of the t-shirts go right into our art department, otherwise known as my little brother. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at the Dirtbag Diaries at earthlink.net or through Facebook. Either way works. Patagonia makes our show possible. We're pleased to announce that they've signed on for another year of stories. Patagonia has always supported independent voices in our community, whether that's activists, athletes, or storytellers like me. Check them out online at patagonia.com. Support also comes from Kuat Racks, who have also pledged to continue making the diaries happen in 2011. Check out their line of bomber bike racks by visiting them online at kuatracks.com. New Belgium also makes the Dirtbag Diaries possible. Wait a second here. I'm starting to see a pattern. They, too, are going to make sure the diaries keep going next year. I guess that means it's going to happen. More stories are coming your way for next year. We aren't even done with this year. We've got a lot of good stories left. So I want to give a big thanks to all of our sponsors and to you, our listeners, who make this happen. I'm Fitzgerald Hall, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. <laughs>